Perhaps you've heard the story, a mother took her little boy shopping, and while they went out together, he watched, he listened, and he followed. And so they'd gone through a number of stores. It was a very long day. Finally, at the last store, the little boy was handed a lollipop by a checkout line clerk. So the mom said to her son, what do you say? And the little boy said, charge it. <laughs> That's influence. And today, as we continue in our series, Experiencing Spiritual Vitality, I really want us to consider that matter of influence. And during Advent, I got together with a new friend, and he asked a question I love hearing, so what's Southview about? And so I, what I did is what you would do, I think. I pulled out a napkin, and I drew this. And I said, this is what we're about at Southview. We think there's three critical relationships in life. Uh, one is the up relationship uh, with God, and Christ is at the center of all we do. He's the center and focus of how we walk in this life. It's about life with God through Jesus Christ. Then the second relationship is that we're called to walk with one another in that relationship. So we gather together regularly to encourage each other, to build each other up in this. That's the in part of relationship. But then thirdly, we don't stop there. We believe we're called to go out with the love and good news of Jesus. So we want to do that in the way we live our lives and how we speak and how we really encourage others in life. So those three relationships, up, in, and out, are what we do at Southview. And we believe that essential to those relationships, the only way really to live this life, is by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God, who, who's given to us by grace. And we think and understand that the first fruit that's to mark us if we're living by the Spirit is love, that that should mark us as a community of faith. And two of the core practices that really nurture us in this life with Jesus, for one, it's the Word, the Word of God. We, so we come regularly to Scripture to be encouraged by it, guided by it. And then secondly is prayer, that we want to be able to pour out our hearts to God, to seek to listen to Him, be guided by Him as we walk together as community. So we say that's what we're about at Southview. And today what I'd like to do is focus on that S, the Spirit. I want to look at that together today and consider the influence of the Spirit in our lives. Because I think many followers of Jesus might agree with every part of that symbol, but in reality, they know little of the Spirit in their daily lives. So today really is kind of the culmination of all we've been considering in this teaching series. And I want to look at some principles that we come back to regularly because they're so critical for this life we walk in with Jesus. And again, let's turn to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, we call it. If you want to turn there with me, and I really encourage you, when we come and gather here, I encourage you to bring your Bible or a Bible app to just be able to follow along in this. I think you'd find it really helpful. And this is what we read in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And as we read this today, remember, this is the word of God. And it says there in verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now here's kind of the, the most basic point of this verse. There's a direct parallel drawn between being drunk with wine 
and being filled with the Spirit, right? Right there. So we ask, so what precisely is the point of comparison between wine and the Holy Spirit? And the issue is influence. Or you could say control. Because a person on the influence of wine or of alcohol, they experience altered behavior. Things change. He or she may say or do things they'd not ordinarily do. I mean, their emotions might be heightened. Mental processes really will be affected. Decision-making ability can be radically altered in that situation. And what Paul is saying essentially is, in a similar way, the filling of the Holy Spirit produces changes in behavior. In fact, if we were to continue on in Ephesians 5 reading here, you'd see that the Apostle Paul lists some of the real tangible results in people's lives of the filling of the Spirit. They're all the outcome of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So let's take that and put it this way as we move in this year. This year, Jesus Christ charges you, as he does every year, to be filled with the Spirit. Does that not sound like a worthwhile calling as you move in this year? So we ask the question then, okay, if that's what we're called to, how do we do that? Really, how do we do that? Well, look at this. If you look back in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, that phrase there Paul says, to be filled with Holy Spirit. Actually, in the original Greek, it's a word plerao. You want to say that with me? Plerao. There you go. And, and it actually means to just jam full. And, and the imagery that that word brings is of like a fishing net of those days, just packed, crammed with fish. And that Greek verb there in Ephesians 5.18, pleiro, it gives us some insight into Jesus' invitation that we might easily miss in our English translations. So you remember your grammar class? All right, here we go. Let's do some grammar here because it gives us some insight here. Four elements of this. For one, pleiro here in Ephesians 5.18, it's an imperative verb, meaning it's a command, it's a charge, it is essential. It is to be the part of the life of every follower of Jesus. It's, not, it's something we must do, God says. Secondly, it's a plural verb, meaning it's for every one of us. It's not just for a select few super-Christians. Thirdly, it's in the present tense. And understand, this is a Greek present tense, which in that say, set day, it meant a continuous action. Meaning, it's not something you do once and you've taken care of it. It's something that must happen continually, repeatedly. That's why this verse could be translated, continue to be filled and filled again with the Holy Spirit. And then one more element of this. Be filled there, pleiro'o, it's actually in the passive form. Meaning, we can't do it to ourselves. It is done to us. Paul doesn't say, Fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying here is, allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. Which I think as we look at this, we can therefore draw kind of two important implications from this text. The Holy Spirit, friends, is ready and willing to fill us. And what we can do is to make ourselves available to him. So I think a natural question then is, Okay, that sounds great. So what is that? What is being filled with the Holy Spirit look like in our lives today? What should we kind of expect in this? 
And to answer that question, let's look back actually to the first coming of the Spirit on the church. Let's start at beginnings. Now you may have noticed already today that we're going to be kind of somewhat technical in our study here today as we look at Scripture. So can I encourage you to work with me today particularly? I, I think it'll be worth it as we go through this. And we're asking the question, how does this filling of the Spirit work? So let's do this. Let's look at three texts in the book of Acts and then want to talk about them, all right? Three pictures that they give us. So let's start in the first text in Acts. Go to Acts 8. Acts chapter 8. And here's the context. This is the early church, of course. And, and the good news, the gospel of Jesus, you could say, is just beginning to spread. This is what we read in Acts 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria, the Samaritans, had received the word of God, meaning they had received the gospel in some sense, verse 14, they sent to them Peter and John. So two of the apostles who came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, you should know this. This passage really has led to some really interesting questions historically. I mean, one of the common questions with this is, okay, so were these Samaritans, were they already believers in Jesus? And, and they then received the Holy Spirit as a kind of second blessing after conversion? Or... Others argue, were these Samaritans not yet really believers? And this text actually describes both their conversion to Christ along with them then receiving the Holy Spirit. Okay, and then there's actually another question. Is the Samaritans' experience here intended to be normative? Meaning, is it what you and I should expect of our lives? Or was it exceptional? Was this kind of just particular to this early church setting when the Holy Spirit was just beginning to come? Now, how you answer those questions would seem to be significant, right? The implication of it? Because if the Samaritans were already believers here, it would seem that this teaches there, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that's kind of a second blessing that took place for them after they turned in faith to Christ. Okay, now, these, they're really good questions. And, and we've actually studied them previously here. And, and so I want to start today at least acknowledging those questions. But it's not what I want to focus on today, okay? And actually, I don't think those questions really get at the primary focus of this text. So what I'd like for us just to note from this story is kind of simply this. Peter and John here, as you read Acts 8, they apparently knew a couple of things. That the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, right? And they knew they did receive the Spirit after they laid hands on them, right? In fact, if you were to continue on reading Acts 8, it goes on to tell us that the result of these Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit was so evident, so profound, that there was a local magician named Simon there, and he really tried to pay Peter and John for it seemed to him to be a great magic trick. That's how evident the change was. All right, so hold those images in your mind, 
And let's go to our next passage in Acts. Second text, text in Acts. This is in Acts 9. And now here's the context in Acts 9. So Saul, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul, he, in Acts 9, he's still a killer of Christ's followers. And while walking to Damascus, he has this vision of Jesus. He's blinded on the pathway. And he's then taken to the home of a Christ follower named Ananias. And this is what we read. This is Acts 9, verse 17. And laying his hands on him, Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the result? Look at verse 20. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, the name of Jesus? But Saul increased all the more in strength. Now that word strength in the original Greek, it's dunamao. It's a word from which we get dynamite. He increased in power, it says, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, you got that picture? All right, hold on to that picture too. And let's move to our third passage in Acts. Just one chapter over. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts 10, Peter now is at the home of a Gentile whose name is Cornelius. And Peter begins sharing with all who were there the good news of Jesus being the Christ, being the Savior. And this is what we read, Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, the circumcised, who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So we ask the question, how could they tell that the Holy Spirit had been poured out? Look at verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues. They, they were speaking in foreign languages they'd never learned and they were extolling, they were praising God. Got it? Okay. Three passages for us. Now, to that we could add a fourth, and I won't look at it today, but just keep in mind also Acts chapter 2, which we've looked at previously. Think of Pentecost, Shavuot, that, that, that when the Spirit first comes upon Jesus' followers. And they also, when the Spirit comes to them, they also start speaking other languages they'd never learned, and they begin preaching with just an astounding boldness that just stuns their audience, the crowd that was around them. And the crowd says, wait a second, these are uneducated oafs. How are they preaching with such power? Okay, now take all those images, let's wrap all those images together and ask this. So what do we make of all this? I mean, you could see how these passages could get confusing, right? And really lead to a lot of debate about the work and fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can see how that can happen, right? In fact, if you studied church history, you'd see that entire denominations have been formed. I mean, just massive church splits have erupted out of different interpretations of just these few passages that we've read. But what I want to do today is this. I, I want to come at this issue of the baptism, the receiving of the Spirit, kind of indirectly, by asking, in kind of the brevity of our time, all right, 
So what can we say about the receiving of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts that we pretty much all could agree on? What can we say about receiving, being filled with the Holy Spirit? All right, think on that for a second. And let's start with this. What do you think? When you honestly read, not just Acts, but the entire New Testament, you cannot help but get the impression of a significant difference from much of our contemporary Christian experience. Think that's fair to say? I mean, I, I think generally, we, almost all of us could agree on that. Seems kind of evident. That I, I remember back when I was in high school and had been studying these passages for a bit of time. And, and one weekend I was studying them again. And I remember on a Saturday evening going on for a drive by myself. On a Saturday night, pulling to the side of a country road, I could literally take you to the ex exact spot where I stopped. And, and I just there, just kind of was wrestling with, wondering, really praying. Okay, so why does our church life, why does my life look so unlike this? And that might sound like an odd teenager, but really, I think many of, of us have had those questions at that age. And I think we could say this. I think we could understand that perhaps some things that took place in the early church were just for that time. They, they were part of the first coming of the Holy Spirit in the church. I think all of us could probably understand that, that not all of this applies specifically today. But even so, I mean, other things would seem to transcend any particular time period. And particularly this. I mean, for them, the Holy Spirit was a fact of experience. And for many Christians today, it's only a fact of doctrine. I think that's fair to say. I mean, because throughout the book of Acts, and again, we've just looked at a few portions of it, a person knows when they receive the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we just read. It's an experience with effects they can point to. Can we just kind of agree, okay, at least what we've read, that's what we've read. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at one other passage then. Again, in the book of Acts, just flip over to Acts 19. Acts 19. And the context in Acts 19 is that Paul now, he's coming to the city of Ephesus, and he finds in Ephesus some followers of Jesus, some disciples, who as Paul discovers, they really only know the baptism of John the Baptist. They, they haven't been baptized yet in the name of Jesus. And, and Paul kind of detects that there's something wrong, kind of something out of line here, and he breaks the whole thing open by asking a key question in verse two, which is simply this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed. And I want us to catch this. That's really a very unusual, kind of a remarkable question for contemporary North American evangelicals who have been taught by and large that the way you know that you've received the Holy Spirit is by being a believer in Christ. I mean, we've been told you can know that you have the Holy Spirit because all who believe in Christ receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, I teach that. I've taught that in the series. I mean, it's a logical implication from Scripture. So if we today want to know if someone has received the Holy Spirit, what would we typically ask them? I, I think we would ask, 
have you believed in Jesus? And if their answer is yes, then we know the person received the Holy Spirit. So receiving the Holy Spirit is kind of more of a logical implication or inference from believing, not as much an experience to point to. That makes sense, that difference? But Paul's question here in Acts 19, it's not like that, is it? I mean, because Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so if, if we'd been part of that group, we perhaps would have looked kind of quizzically at Paul and said, I don't get it, Paul. I mean, if you assume we believed in Christ, because Paul says that here, why don't you assume we received the Holy Spirit? Because we've been taught from Scripture that all who receive, believe, receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, we've been taught to just believe the Spirit is there, whether there are any effects or evidences or not. In fact, Paul, your own words would be, when you write your letter to the Romans, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's what you wrote in Romans 8, 9. You would write that. But here in Acts 19, too, you talk as if there's a way to know that we receive the Spirit that's different from just believing in Christ. You talk as if we could kind of point to an experience of the Spirit in addition to believing in order to answer your question. And that, in fact, is the way Paul talks here. I mean, when Paul asks, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? He expects that a person who has received the Holy Spirit knows it. Not just because it's kind of a logical implication flowing from his or her faith in Christ, but because it's an experience with effects, with evidence that he or she can point to. So for Paul, the best way to attest the authenticity of the faith of these so-called disciples is to ask them about their experience of the Spirit. That seemed kind of odd. Friends, it shouldn't. In fact, listen to what John Piper. John Piper, who I don't think ever would be called a Pentecostal, wrote this. I sometimes fear that we have so redefined conversion in terms of human decisions and have so removed any necessity of the experience of God's spirit that many people think they are saved when in fact they only have Christian ideas in their head, not spiritual power in their heart. Oh, you hear him? Many people think they are saved when in fact they only have Christian ideas in their head, not spiritual power in their heart. I, mean, I, I think it is so easy to imagine a spiritual counselor saying to a new convert today, okay, now don't expect to notice any difference in your life. Just believe you received the Holy Spirit. But that is so far from what we see in the New Testament, isn't it? I mean, Scripture makes it evident. However it comes, whenever it comes, receiving the Holy Spirit is a real life-changing experience. I mean, Christianity, following Jesus, is not merely and kind of an array of wonderful life principles. It's not merely performance of religious kind of rituals or sacraments. It is the life-changing experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us through faith in Jesus Christ, who is indeed the Lord of the universe. Amen? And friends, that's what runs through this entire book of Acts. 
in every case of the Holy Spirit's coming or being received in the book of Acts, there are definite experienced effects that one can point to as evidence that the Spirit's been received. And know this, these effects in the book of Acts, they're not always the same by any means. I mean, for example, for some we look at the effect, kind of the fruit of receiving, being filled with the Holy Spirit was boldness and power and witness. But then for others, it was courageous obedience to God. For some, it was speaking in tongues. For others, it was praising God. For some, it was prophesying. And, and still for others, some, it was working of miracles. For some, it was signs and wonders. That was the effect. That was the evidence in these cases. So we'd kind of take all this and ask the question, so what does all this tell us? And friends, I think it tells us this. Whether you understand the spirit to come in, in one filling and conversion or with, with a second step of baptism of the Holy Spirit after conversion, or if you think the Spirit comes kind of in a continuing sequence of fillings by the Spirit, what I think we can all acknowledge from Scripture is this. Scripture expects, expects this filling or baptism of the Spirit to be a real, identifiable experience of the living God not just a logical inference from a human decision to believe in Christ. And with the Holy Spirit, things change. Transformation begins to take place when we're filled with the Spirit of God. And in fact, according to Scripture, as we look throughout it, there are two other consistent marked expressions or signs in the Spirit's presence. In fact, Paul speaks of one in the book, or a letter to the Galatian church. This is in Galatians. Galatians chapter five, verse 22. In fact, read this with me. Let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the tree of the Spirit is there, this fruit will be there increasingly over time. Not all immediately, but over time. And secondly, another evidence of the Spirit is a promise that's given in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, and we read this in the first week of our series. This is in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said, you'll receive what? Power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, Jesus says, we'll receive power. And how will that power be expressed? For one, look at verse eight again. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. So, so the power that comes upon us when we receive the Holy Spirit is you could say maybe primarily or firstly expressed in witnessing to the world through our words and our actions of the reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now do you think that promise was only for the early church? Could it be intended for us as well? A hope that we can rest in. Could it be that the way we live out these arrows is to only be through the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Because friends, I believe this as we look at scripture. It is in this power, the power of the Spirit, that we're able to share the good news of Jesus in word and action with our friends, community, city, and world. 
And that promise is made to everyone upon whom the Holy Spirit comes, not just to a few. So, so Clyde, do we receive the Spirit when we turn an authentic faith to Jesus? And I think Scripture emphatically says absolutely, yes. In, in fact, here again, this is back in Ephesians. This is in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul writes this again. Verse 13, when you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's a guarantee of your future eternal inheritance. When you believed in Christ, boom, you're sealed with the Spirit. But it should cause us to pause if the receiving of the Holy Spirit has not brought any experiential evidence of his presence in our lives. That should cause us to pause. So today, I'll ask you Paul's question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And you might respond to that, well, yes, I, I, we just read it. I was sealed with the Spirit when I turned in faith to Christ. Again, which is absolutely true. But can I ask you, have you seen the power of the Spirit expressed in your life? Because however the Spirit comes, it's an experience of a divine reality. It's not just some idea about our spiritual condition that we kind of infer from a decision we've made. It is actually, Scripture says, a, a supernatural act. It's an experience you can point to to answer that question. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? So it could be perhaps that you'd respond to that question by saying, yes, I have seen a spirit of obedience at work in my life that increasingly has helped me subdue sin and incline me to follow Christ, even when I face the greatest temptations or uncertainty. Or perhaps your response would be, yes, praise God. I, I've seen a spirit of worship in my life. It fills my heart and mouth with worship to Jesus and God the Father. Or perhaps you'd say, yes, I, I've seen a spirit of courage at work in my life, increasingly overcoming fear, giving a will to risk things for a cause of Christ. Or yes, I, I've seen the love of the Spirit growing in my life, really prompting me increasingly to grace and away from selfishness. Or perhaps you'd even answer that question by saying yes. Even though I know that speaking in tongues or the gift of prophecy or any other spiritual gift are not the only signs of the Spirit's presence, Yet together with other evidences, my spiritual gifts have also been a precious evidence that the power of God is upon me through his spirit. You, you might answer that question in one of those ways or in many other ways in which God's power has been expressed in your life. But let me encourage you or challenge you. If you cannot answer that question affirmatively today, then, beloved, it may be that either for some reason there's been a, a quenching or a blockage of the manifestation of God's power in your life. We looked last weekend at the reality we can quench the Spirit's work in our lives. So perhaps you need to seek the fullness of the Spirit in prayer and obedience. Or perhaps it may be that God is actually doing far more in your life than you realize because you've really never been taught how to recognize the work of the Spirit in your life. Or it could be 
that you've truly not believed in Christ, that you've really only given lip service to trusting Christ. And as we move towards communion today, really, you need to call out to Christ in authentic and obedient faith. And really, in any of these three cases, I encourage you to pray as we prepare for communion. For one, just to declare your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your King. And, and secondly, to ask for a releasing, really an outpouring of the Spirit in your life. And thirdly, I invite you to ask God, oh God, would you give me the ability to discern your work in my life? Because brothers and sisters, the only way, the only way we are to live this life with Jesus is by being filled with the Spirit. Amen? So how fitting that we're now invited to come to the table of Christ. And, and so we come along with men and women of faith, even those earlier followers in the book of Acts, they too came to the table and, and they broke bread. Remembering as they broke, the body of Christ was broken for you. And then they took a cup, as we'll take cups today, remembering that Jesus said, as he lifted the cup at that Passover, that last supper meal, th this cup, is a new covenant, a new agreement in my blood. And he said, I won't drink this again until I do it with you again in paradise. Oh, how good will that be? So we're invited to come, friends. And in this meal, it is a time of remembrance, for one, absolutely. We're called to remember what he's done. But it is a time as well when we are actually invited to receive from God that he, in some spiritual sense, through his spirit, feeds us with this meal. So if your faith is in Christ, I invite you to take this meal today. If you're not yet there, there's no embarrassment in passing these elements by. We're just so thankful you're here with us. So let me lead us in prayer, and, and then we'll come to the table. Will you bow your heads with me? And before I pray, I just want to give you a, a moment for personal prayer, response to God, just in silent prayer. If any one of those things that we listed already is on your heart to pray to God, just in this time, and again, in silent prayer, call out to God. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us again, we pray. Our mighty provider, we are weary of limitations. Would you prepare us for greater things? Would you, by your spirit, inspire us, equip us, protect us even as we, as we do our, dare to accomplish something wonderful by your power for your glory? And bless us, Lord, in this, please, so that we may participate more fully in the work you are doing in the world. And as you bring fruit, success, would you keep us humbly dependent on you in this and filled with walking by your spirit, we pray. Fill us now as we come to the table in faith. And again, all God's people say, amen.